0: Right. Um, should we go to um, the cultural differences that you've experienced? You know, are you, I don't know. You mentioned something to visiting India. Um, I'm imagining. Is is it true that you visited visited India? Like uh, later? Yes. Yes. So can uh, you talk about that and just culturally that, that being in India, comparing it to US. Mm-hmm. where you were born, then in UK, and now in Italy. Can you talk about the cultural differences oh, that sure. you've ex- mm-hmm. experienced in different places that you've been? Yes. The um, ones, even the ones that you've not mentioned. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, yes. So um, that in itself is an interesting kind of uh, package to open, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we were younger... Um, our parents kind of made it a priority to visit extended relatives and family in India every two years. And, you know, as a kid, it's easier to do that and kind of work around school because, you know, um, when you're younger, it's a little bit more easier to do than when you're older. Hmm. So we had the opportunity to, you know, see grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, and You know, um, kind of going back to what I was saying about being an extroverted child, Mm -hmm. I remember being like that with my cousins. And I remember saying that I used to kind of play games with them where I would be a talk show host or a news broadcaster. Um, That was what I did with them. And kind of going back to where I was talking about how I kind of muted myself when uh, I got older Mm -hmm. because I wanted people to like me. I didn't want people to think I was weird. That happened in India, in my India trips as well. Um, When I was about 12 years old and, you know, 14, when we made those trips during my middle school, high school years, Mm -hmm. I found myself really kind of shutting down because number one, as a second gen, as a daughter of immigrants, I've grown up in America, um, you know, I was never... I I, would, I never learned my family's language in a fluent manner. So, in the sense that I can speak it fluently, I grew up hearing the um, language around the house. I grew Which up one? hearing it. Oh, sorry, uh, Thummer, So Tamil, spelled Tamil, but pronounced uh, Tamil. uh It's a language that is commonly spoken in southern India. Hmm. Um, yeah. So going back to what I was saying. Um, Your family
0: used to talk in Tamil?
1: Yes, yes. So um, I would hear it. My parents would speak to each other in Tamil. Um, In India, when I would make the trips, I would hear it being spoken all around me. Um, But something that my sister and I, and I'm sure a lot of uh, kids... Are 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 you straining
0: your vocals? Are they straining?
1: Oh, no, I'm okay. I just had to clear my voice. Okay. Yeah.
0: Your sister's... Um, Sorry, you're seeing your sisters when you visit uh, Tamar. Oh, then yes, so, everyone around you is speaking in that language. Uh-huh.
1: Yes, um, so the city that we visited was uh, Chennai, um, and that is a major city where Tamar is spoken, mm-hmm. um, so. Yeah. So like I was saying, when my sister and I would go and, you know, be exposed to the language, Mm. we had issues with speaking back um, in Thummer fluently. So, um, you know, I will say this to kind of connect to my later experiences in other cultures. Mm. I've, when it comes to languages, I have never had an issue with understanding language. Mm. Um, I think as a introvert as a or someone with introverted qualities mm-hmm. it's very easy to kind of listen to things and internalize it and understand it better but when it came to kind of active forms of language such as speaking I've always had issues with that mm-hmm. um, regardless of the language I was learning as except English English is my comfort language um, wow
0: that's so similar to mine I also struggle
1: <laughs> yeah
0: learning like speaking the language but hearing mm-hmm. and understanding, most of my, you know, in Kenya, there are so many tribes. Right. So uh, understanding languages is very easy, but I come from two different tribes and both of them I can't speak in that language. But you can't, mm-hmm. you know, talk about me and I can't, I wouldn't hear what you said.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. And mm. this was something that I was ashamed of when I was younger. But then once I realized that this was a very common experience of a lot of children of immigrants especially mm-hmm. children of immigrants of countries that where english is the dominant language mm.
0: um
1: i started to kind of you know not be so hard on myself because you know something i've seen and you know when i've talked to friends of my similar kind of um situation mm. a lot of you know children of immigrants um to countries like the us or canada or english speaking countries There's this kind of push to kind of really excel in English and Mm. pretty much kind of show everyone that, hey, you're not dumb because you speak English really well. And, you know, as a world, Mm. you know, we see English as this language. Exactly. Superior language. And I think this is something that a lot of countries where colonialism was experienced. Mm. um, This is a phenomenon. And, you know, of course, India was under British rule for quite some time. So I would, you know, I'm not surprised that, you know, people of my parents generation would not be upset if their children take on a fluency that is, you know, excellent in English. And if they had to sacrifice, you know, their native language to achieve Mm -hmm. that, they're not too upset by it. I mean, at least my parents, you know, they they haven't shown any remorse for me not speaking my family's language with fluency Mm. but it is something that you know does make me um upset from time to time but it is something that I've also grown up to realize that it's not my fault um for not being fluent Mm. um and you know yeah yeah no of course I Mm. I try to you know I think it's something that also helps me connect to other people other second gen uh People, other people that have experiences similar to this, I think it's comforting to know that we that there are other people like this. It's not just me. Mm. Um, So I'm very happy to share that. And I think connecting back to the other cultures I've experienced to in my life so far, um, with the UK, I was very young, so I can't really comment on that Mm. too much. But Mm. my parents will say that my sister and I developed uh, coal miners' accents for a little bit because. We grew up in a neighborhood, or not grew. Up, we we were living in a neighborhood um, that uh, had a particular uh, accent of uh, British English, mm-hmm. and my sister and I had that for a little while when we came back to the U.S. But mm-hmm. now my ex- my accent is completely American, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, in. So my next instance with language was learning German in high school, Mm -hmm. and that was an interesting opportunity because a lot of high schools in California, as a second language, often teach Spanish, Mm -hmm. which is um, practical because there's a a huge uh, Spanish-speaking population in California. Mm -hmm. Um, My high school actually had a German uh, teacher, so I was able to take German. And in high school, I felt like learning German felt a lot more motivating for me because I felt like I was good at it. Mm -hmm. And even though I still felt hesitant about the speaking skill of it, I felt like it was something that I could further develop and, you know, finally learn a second language with native or with fluency. Mm. Um, however, when I entered college, you know, along like with what I was saying earlier about my eating disorder and struggles, um, and the, also the continuing pressure to do well and get really good grades in college. Mm. Um, when I took a German class in college to try to continue learning German, I had a very tough teacher. I was given a mediocre grade on the first assignment Mm. and that scared me from continuing on. You know, it, this learning, this language should have been this very fun opportunity without pressure. Mm. But because I was in college and taking it in college and, and um, was scared about the grade I was going to get, I dropped it. And, you know, from that point on, never continued with German. And, you know, more recently with Italian Again, it was another experience where once I kind of had this desire to go abroad and, you know, do this postdoc in Italy, mm. I was able to take an Italian class before going for fun. It was like a, a Saturday morning class and the teacher was very kind, very, you know, easy to engage with. Um But then of course, once COVID happened, my motivation really dwindled because I was just wondering, okay, if this is happening, what's the point of me continuing if, you know, this opportunity is not going to happen, you know, Mm. not knowing where the pandemic was going. And then of course, once I got to Italy, um, the culture kind of shock I experienced was, I think, very much influenced by what the pandemic had caused over there, um, as well as the environment I was in, and also the fact that I was working in a very international city, so a city where a lot of Italians did were bilingual. They at least spoke English. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of them I met, you know, say they don't speak it very well, but they definitely spoke English better than I spoke Italian. Um, And when I first came to Italy, I was very excited about trying to find people to practice with to hopefully you know really immerse my finally immerse myself in a place where I could use a language like that mm. unfortunately you know like I mentioned earlier when I was dealing with the depression again when I was dealing with a work environment I wasn't happy with I really kind of had to put my language learning and excitement and motivation aside because mm. I wasn't in a very good place mentally mm. Um, interestingly enough with my new position, I've been given the opportunity to take Italian classes again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's been an interesting experience because after going through a really tough year, especially in a new country, uh, really, really damaged by COVID. Um, it's been almost like a, you know, a second chance. And it, I will be honest and say that finding the motivation, the the motivation I did have before going to Italy has been very difficult, Mm -hmm. but I think being given this chance again has been really, um, you know, uh, really big. It's been, it's been a hopeful experience in the sense that, okay, like now I'm in an environment that is going to encourage this, that wants this for me. Mm -hmm. So let me try and take advantage of this. Let me try to put myself in a situation where I can hopefully find the motivation I once had. Hmm. Um, but you know, it's, it's very interesting because as a scientist, as a communicator, as someone who loves speaking and talking and discussing, um, you would think that having a knack for languages would be second nature. Hmm. But for me, you know, English is my comfort zone. It is, it is my tool to express myself. Um, any other language at this point is, you know, it's, it's just not going to get me to that point. And, you know, just to comment on that, you often hear people say, oh, well, if you're bilingual or no, no more than one language that increases your intelligence, mm-hmm. which is far from the truth. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that even if you feel comfortable in one language, mm-hmm. the depth that of the words of the vocabulary, of how to construct a story of how to communicate with that language. Um, it, I, in my opinion, is just as equivalent as, you know, being subpar in two languages. Um, you know, I'm very, it's taken me a long time to get here, mm. but I, I want to say this for people who are also in a similar situation as mine. Mm. You know, I, I consider myself, you know, fluent in one language, but I'm absolutely proud of the the skill I have in that language of my ability to use words, to communicate in an effective way. I am, it's taken me a long time to get to this point, but I am so proud of it. And I wouldn't change it for the world. I wouldn't change it for anything. Um, Of course, I'm not going to let that, you know, you know, stop me from trying to learn other languages, Mm -hmm. but I'm also not going to let other people tell me. Yes. Or Mm -hmm. let other people tell me that I'm, you know, not inferior enough, for is. not
0: knowing another language right. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing that. Um, yes. <laughs> I'm kind of, I don't know. I feel like I'm in a very weird situation myself. We um, mentioned German, and I thought, I remembered the way I've been trying to teach myself German with using Duolingo since mm-hmm. 2020. 2020. And I think one of the main reasons, I is, is think it's something that you think you subtly mentioned, where you're looking for something to. You, 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 you I don't know. For me, I, I don't know if it's the same. For me, I felt like I needed to. Maybe I really suck in languages, maybe, but I, I can challenge myself to learn something foreign, like German. Mm-hmm and see if there's something right with me. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And I I still learned, you know, you know, the grammar, um, the rules, uh, the the simple Guten Morgen, mm-hmm. such like things. Um and I could still even try to watch movies in German or turn off <laughs> I don't know, the English version. I want to hear the German version of a movie. And still understand most of the things and it gets me excited. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I was also very excited when I came to my current project because my my current supervisor, two supervisors, one of, the two of my supervisors, one is German and the other is half mm-hmm. German. Mm-hmm. I felt like this would be a very good opportunity for me to learn German to practice Mm -hmm. German. I even tried going on dating sites and finding someone who knows German and probably, Mm -hmm. hopefully, is also Kenyan. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we we, like we can relate on something. Mm -hmm. But speaking in German has been difficult for me. Like, oh my goodness, it has been very difficult. It is hard because the same struggle I have collecting words together in my own mother tongue or mother tongues. (laughs) Because I have two mother tongues. (laughs) Yes, Um, It's the same problem I'm experiencing with this German thing. And you know that it puts some kind of pressure on yourself, like there's something wrong with you. (laughs) Right. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, because I don't know where I am in terms of that. I I love that you're in a space where you're okay with that, and it's okay. You're still open, but you're okay with where you mm-hmm. are, with what you know, now yeah. English. Because um, there's also, for us, there's also Swahili. Swahili mm-hmm. is the second, it's a national language, It's um, and it's one of the African Union languages, national, recent national uh, African Union languages, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um and most Kenyans actually struggle to speak fluently in Swahili. Yes, we speak Swahili, but we don't speak fluently in Swahili like Tanzanians. Mm-hmm. And there's that thing we prayed ourselves like, oh, to it, like <laughs> mm-hmm. it's 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 I, actually a uh, incorrect way of speaking Kiswahili, Ki saying that Swahili is not our language, or we can't really speak Swahili, uh, but we communicate in Swahili. That's, even people who speak English, like we easily speak in English, we easily communicate in English, but you'll still find someone easily ducking back to Swahili words. Like, mm-hmm. just say something in, in, in between a sentence. Like, sometimes I will stammer, not because, I don't know, something in English, it's just that sometimes um it's easier to communicate whatever I was saying in putting a Swahili word in like a a normal Kenyan will do, (laughs) right? But communicating that to someone else who doesn't know what what Swahili word you want to put is another thing. And I feel like it's the thing that people have dealt with by putting slang as a communication tool here Mm -hmm. because... It's a, because it's, it's more of a combination of Swahili and English and um, most common tribes, tribe languages in Kenya, like Ikuyu um, mm-hmm. and Luo, and you know, it's just like we hadn't, as in, I was like, I'm putting so much pressure on myself, yet still, most people who I'm trying to learn so much Swahili or so much. My language with the author also, also don't know the fluency in it. Like they are not even fluent in it. Why am I putting myself so much pressure in it? Mm-hmm. But anyway, I, I've never spoken about this. I've never even thought yes. <laughs> about <laughs> it, like actively in my head and said it out loud. It's just something you always think in the back of your mind, right? Well, mm-hmm. oh, amazing. Anyway, I don't know why how we got here. Um... <laughs> Do you want some, to comment anything else about culture in different places um apart from language?
1: Yeah, um <clears throat> when it comes to i suppose how countries kind of their societies kind of work, mm. I would say that, you know, between in, or among India, the US and Italy there are definitely, you know, stark differences. I, it's actually kind of funny because after, you know, being visiting India, you know, living in the U S and then going to Italy. Mm. It's funny how, you know, I'll walk around sometimes in, you know, Milan or something like that in Italy. And I will see, you know, an apartment building and be immediately reminded of an old building that my grandparents used to live in. So Mm. it's interesting how Italy is almost like this mix of old world, you know, you know, uh, Indian things that remind me of India, and then also, you know, very Western things like the U S. Um, and then also in recent months, I've been traveling between Italy and U S for work. Mm. And, um, even though Italy and the U S are considered Western countries, every time I've returned from Italy and back to the U S, um, it's almost like I'm coming back from India because the, the worlds are so different in that sense. Mm. Um, it's almost like I'm, leaving a different planet. (laughs) I mean, in the sense that, um, when I'm in Italy, my interactions and the people I see and how things are done are different from Mm. how it's done in the U S um, and also in India, of course. Um, but then, you know, when it comes to professional culture, Mm -hmm. um, you know, next. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, I can't comment on, uh, you know, corporate or industry uh, culture because, mm. you know, this company I'm working for, this is actually my first experience mm. out of academia in a professional setting. Mm-hmm. Um, but being it, that being an international company, I think there is a greater understanding of how things work in the U.S. and in other countries. So I think my experience is very similar and uh, actually probably a little bit more better than American companies. Um mm. In some ways, because there's a lot more priority on work life balance and, um, you know, uh, colleague interactions and, you know, looking out for the employee, which is really nice.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, when it comes to academia, in my experience, my academic uh, experiences in the US were a lot similar to how they were in Italy in the sense that. I feel like academia, no matter where you go in the world, Hmm. the traditions, the structure, the expectations are always the same.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Even if the PhD program duration may be different from one country to another, or, you know, the expectation, uh, specific requirements, Hmm. um, you know, there is this constant, you know, from what I've seen, this, you know, constant, uh, kind of pressure of your colleagues to stay late and, you know, constantly plan experiments and, Mm. you know, always have something ready for your boss to show and, um, not really having a clear cut border between work-life balance. Um, which is something that I wanted to definitely get away from once I was in my postdoc and realized that staying in academia, would always be like this until we really sit down and figure out how to change it. Um.
0: What is making it different in industry? Why is there... What is so different, like in terms of what is making it work, the work-life balance thing? What is making it work that is not working in academia?
1: Right. I mean, I think when I think about what I've experienced and what I think is the difference Mm. when it comes to industry, you know, your goal is the company's goal in the sense that, you know, you're making products, you're interfacing with customers, you are interfacing with things that will eventually lead to profit. Um, You know, and I think when it comes to that, uh, you know, a happy company, is going to have happy employees, mm-hmm. or at least it's what you strive for. Yeah. So, you know, if you have employees that are happy with their benefits, with their time off, mm-hmm. you know, with their flexibility and how they work, mm-hmm. um, you're going to get better product. Um, and I think when you have, when you're working in a very kind of structured environment, like you are in industry or in corporate,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, there's kind of like a, almost kind of like a, keeping an eye on the law, keeping an eye on rules, keeping an eye on, you know, very by the book, by, you know, making sure things are, you know, nothing is off, off, you know, um, in, in regards to, um, like anyone calling something out and they want everything to be clear, um, so that no one can accuse them of anything I would think in, in general, Um, But when it comes to academia, Mm. I feel like it comes from this sense of like old tradition. Mm. If you think about when people used to get PhD degrees. So when I think back to when my, for example, my grandfather got a PhD, Mm. um, it was treated like this very kind of like elite world, Mm. you know, people that are very smart, very, you know, well-read, very cerebral you know, getting these really kind of distinguished titles. And Mm. if you think about the PhD and the traditions of graduation,
0: Mm. I think a
1: lot of it stems from, like, um, I want to say the British culture. Mm. Um, I'm not – don't quote me on that, but I believe that's what it is. Um, Mm. But, you know, all of those – this idea of tradition has been kind of pushed on the continuing generations. Mm. But now we're at a point where, you know – you can get that PhD. You can have that kind of title, but we have people out there that are not even introducing themselves as doctor. Mm -hmm. You know, we're kind of, um, you know, you work so hard for the PhD and then you still introduce yourself without telling someone you have a doctor in your name. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're not properly compensating people that get PhDs. Mm -hmm. We're not, um, you know, we don't have positions for them to stay in academia. We're not we're not prioritizing these people. And I think somewhere along the way between when my grandfather got his PhD in back in the 1950s to now, there hasn't really been anyone kind of calling academia out. There hasn't been anyone looking at academia and looking at people and saying, hey, you can't treat your students like that. You can't treat your postdocs like that. You have to, you know have more structure. I think academia has kind of slid by because it's been kind of wrapped up in this, uh, traditions kind of, um, kind of, uh, view. Um, I think it's been able to kind of escape the structure that you see in the corporate world and and industry. Mm
0: -hmm. And because
1: it's been able to escape that a lot of the things, um, have kind of been, uh, neglected, um, especially when it comes to, the work-life balance mm. of students and postdocs. I think there's always this pressure. Um, you know, when I think of my former colleagues, um, I just remember everyone always talking about how stressed they were. Mm. I remember telling, I mean, I remember people telling me, you know, how much, how little sleep they've had and, but almost bragging about it because mm. it's like that they feel like they have to do that. They feel like they have to show that they're always working. And like, that's um, a form of excellence. Right. And, you know, once I left my PhD, I was hoping to get away from that in my postdoc and to kind of, you know, establish my boundaries while still doing great work and while still getting a good experience. But unfortunately, what I came across was that academia, number one, is very entrenched in its ways. Number Mm. two, you know, whether you leave one country to go to another, academia is still the same Mm. in my experience. And, you know, number three, there really is not too much flexibility in academia as far as uh, at least until you reach a professorship position or until you reach a position of, you know, tenured leadership. Mm
0: -hmm. If you're
1: a PhD student or a postdoc or a research assistant or something along those lines, a subordinate position, Mm -hmm. you're always going to be treated like... A worker. Uh, I don't want to say slave, but, you know, in some ways it, all, it almost is like that, um, depending on the situation. Mm. Um, so I think that is why we have an issue with um, why there is a difference between negative differences between academia and industry. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot more people want to leave academia and pursue things in industry because they're not getting the support they need from that environment, which is unfortunate, um, because we do need happy scientists. We need happy researchers. We need people that want to go to the lab every day and find something new and exciting and, and advance things for society that could help society in disease prog- and disease progress and, you know, finding cures for diseases and, and along those lines. But, you know, we want we want those people to be happy. We don't want them to be miserable, but a lot of people are being feeling miserable, which is very unfortunate and which is very telling of how much we need to pay attention to um, prior to prioritizing uh, fixing academia.
0: Mm. Academia, academia. <laughs>